turn with me to Isaiah 57 this evening. The second to last song in that set, uh, Arms of God, I asked Monty and Brianna if they wouldn't mind doing that. I don't think we've done that in this room since Robbie was here. Robbie and Diane, that was a, a signature song for them. They let us in worship many Wednesday nights and many Wednesday nights. That was a part of their set. That was a, is, I assume, still a favorite song of theirs. They've been at Calvary Ark City these past several years. I think you know. Their son Ryan took over as senior pastor after Mark Fry went home to the Lord and uh, they felt led of God to go down and support Ryan. And I bring all of that up. Um, some of you know that Robbie beat kidney cancer, gosh, 30 years ago. Um, he was recently, well, we don't know what he's been diagnosed with. We know there's a mass on his pancreas. We know that there are some dark spots that uh, may or may not be on his liver. There are biopsies happening, and he has asked uh, us to come alongside them in prayer. So, Lord, we call upon your name. We call upon those arms of love that Robbie directed us to in prayer and worship so many times. Lord, there's nothing hid from you as doctors pour over images and scrutinize biopsies and tests. Lord, you already know what's going on. You've known since before the beginning of time. And we ask, we join Robbie and Diane, Ryan and his family in asking, Lord, would you pour out your mercy? You are perfect goodness. You are absolute love. And you know beyond any of us what best looks like in this situation. And would you do what's best? Would you do that which accords with your mercy? Would you have your way with them? And would you comfort and encourage them and wrap your arms of love around them during this time of not knowing, this time of waiting? Lord, love them as only you can. We ask in your holy name. Amen. Isaiah 57. Last week, we took just the, the last few verses of chapter 56. And we read the indictment that the Holy Spirit had there. The scathing words that he directs towards Israel's shepherds. And we acknowledge that there's an interpretive challenge in reading those last few verses. Was the Holy Spirit speaking of the shepherds in Isaiah's day, in Jesus' day, in days yet to come, the days, well, perhaps the days that include today leading up to tribulation. And we said, could be any of them. Could be all of them. Because the qualities that, that the Holy Spirit through Isaiah was calling out, the shepherds who would rather sleep than serve, who direct their best attentions to self rather than others, who care more about today than tomorrow. Well, that's, that, those are the qualities of poor leadership of any context. 
Well, tonight, as we turn to chapter 57, we're greeted with the results of that poor leadership. Verse 1, the righteous perishes as a result of that poor leadership. And no man takes to heart. Merciful men are taken away while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. The result of the poor leadership we read about last week, Isaiah just said, is that righteous people die. When the people charged with protecting the flocks don't, the innocent die. Interesting, however, as quickly as he says that, Isaiah admonishes us to keep a right perspective on those deaths. No one considers, verse 1 again, that the righteous is taken away from evil, and that may not be entirely a bad thing. He shall enter, the righteous one taken away, shall enter into peace. They, those righteous taken away, shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. Take comfort, Isaiah says, that while the righteous die under poor leadership, those who perish at least won't have to watch, they won't have to witness the death and destruction that's going to follow afterwards. They won't have to see the rest of the story. They won't have to see the unspooling, the the product of that bad leadership. Take comfort, Isaiah might also be saying. Take comfort, remember we don't mourn as those who have no hope. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Hadn't been written yet, but Isaiah certainly knew that. And he knew precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the faithful. Psalm 116.15. Or, because this is Wednesday night, or the Holy Spirit might be saying, take comfort because the righteous ones are taken, but they didn't die. What now? Well, what's another possibility? We don't mourn as those who have no hope. Where do we see that verse? That's 1 Thessalonians 4.13. What is Paul talking about in that context? I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Another possibility... And I'm not insisting that this is the right interpretation, but offered for your consideration, because it's Wednesday night, is Isaiah perhaps prophetically looking at the rapture. When the righteous are taken away and escape the fate that awaits Israel during the tribulation. For Israel, 
three and a half years of unmitigated disaster and a certain amount of, of strife as, as Israel with the rest of the world experiences God's judgment from the beginning of the tribulation. Could, 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 there, could what be, is in view here be the righteous escaping before the disaster? And Isaiah saying, hey, they've got it better than the rest of you will have. I don't know that that's... I don't know that that's for sure the right interpretation. The word perish there certainly poses a problem. That, that's an obstacle to that interpretation. But, but there's, there's a vagueness. There's a, there's a, it's cryptic almost. How do they perish? They're taken away. They enter into their peace. What does that all mean? I don't know. Whatever happens to the righteous... Isaiah's confident that they're better off than those who are left behind. See what I did there? When the righteous are taken away, whether by death or by rapture, idolaters are left behind, and that's never good. Idolaters are left behind, and Isaiah has some words for them. Come here, you sons of the sorceress, you offspring of the adulterer and the harlot. He's speaking to Israel, some of Israel or all of Israel. And he's speaking to them in strong language. Language almost reminiscent of the language that Jesus used addressing the Pharisees. Similar in style, similar in substance, right? Whom do you ridicule, verse 4? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue? Interesting that that that's an expression that's passed down through the centuries. It's literally what's in view there. Who are you mocking? Are you not children of transgression, offspring of falsehood? The Holy Spirit is saying, you're mocking me with your words? You're mocking me with your actions? Why exactly? I don't know if you're following basketball. There's a there's a woman in the NCAA women's basketball tournament who's doing things that no one, male or female, has ever done in the history of the tournament. Um, the camera caught her in the, in the last game. One of the opposing players was, was, was talking trash to her, and she just turned around and said, you're down by 15 points. Just stop. <laughs> and, and it's sort of the same idea here, is, is God is saying, you're talking trash to me? Do you remember who I am? <laughs> Do you remember our relationship? Creator, creation. But it wouldn't be hard to make application. It wouldn't be hard to, to read God's words and apply them to our nation in our day. Wouldn't be hard to, to make an application to any nation in any day that's forgotten the Lord. Because there's a certain universality to sin. And there's a certain universality at, at the history of a nation that turns from God and embraces sin. There are certain predictable qualities and characteristics. Fascination with the occult is one. Doctrines of demons. And so Isaiah says, you sons of the sorceress. That's what he's invoking there. Preoccupation with sex and with sexual sin. 
is also a quality of a deteriorating nation. And speaking of deterioration, deterioration of the family. The lack of, of meaning, the loss of, of um, that, that integral foundational part of society. And the embrace of infanticide as a lifestyle choice. Sort of everything that the Holy Spirit is talking about here, right? Verse 6, among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion. They, they are your lot. Even to them you've poured a drink offering. You've offered a grain offering. You've worshipped the creation, God says. Should I receive comfort in these? You've elevated nature and the natural world as a God above the true and living God, as a God above the creator God. And, and God is saying, am I supposed to feel good about this? You, you make an offering to the creation. Am, am I supposed to be placated by that? What am I supposed to do with that? Is that supposed to satisfy me? Same idea in verse 7. On a lofty and high mountain you've set up your bed. Even there you went up to offer sacrifice in the high places. Also behind doors and their posts you've set up your remembrance for you've uncovered yourself to those other than me and have gone up to them. You've enlarged your bed and made a covenant with them. You've loved their bed where you saw their nudity. He's speaking, obviously, of spiritual adultery in vivid terms. The, the, the reference there in the middle, behind the doors and their posts you've set up your remembrance, that's a reference to the mezuzah. You've, you've no doubt seen in Jewish homes and in some Christian homes uh, a, little, a little container, a little uh, uh, holding place uh, that, that some put just outside or just inside their door and in it, uh, observant Jewish homes to this day place the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 and 6, Hear, O Israel, hear the Lord your God is one, and love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and strength. Those verses are, are written out and, and tucked into sometimes cylinders, sometimes boxes on the doorposts of Jewish homes, some Christian homes. And what God is saying is, okay, instead of uh, marking your doors with a tribute, with a remembrance, with a prayer to me, they're marked with a tribute to, to your gods, to other gods, to gods of creation. And we see that, don't we? You've, you, you've marked your home with tokens, with, with talismans to, to false gods, celebrations of your spiritual adultery. Verse 9, the list of charges continues. You went to the king with ointment, increased your perfumes. You sent your messengers far off and even descended to Sheol. Now that's a little puzzling. And in part I think it's puzzling because I'm not convinced it's the best translation. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, whose, whose commentary on Isaiah I'm loving, um, it's just recently published, and um, as, as a Jewish believer, he's got insights that, that I'd never noticed. One of the things that he points out is that the word king in Hebrew is melech, and is sometimes written molech as a proper name. But we know the proper name Molech also belongs to an Ammonite god that shows up again and again in the history of Israel, right? Every time Israel turns to adultery, it's, it's Baal and it's Molech 
are the names that get mentioned more than all the other names. Now, what do, what do we do with that? Well, if we're talking about, if, if we believe that Isaiah is speaking primarily to the leaders of his day, well, in his day, before the Babylonian captivity, idolatry was still very much a thing. Because at this point in Isaiah's writing, Manasseh's probably king. And idolatry raged under Manasseh. So it's possible, verse 9, that invoking Molech, that Isaiah is talking about the idolatry, the real idolatry of the real god Molech in his day. What do you do with that if Isaiah is talking about future Israel? And verse 1 was really talking about the rapture. How would the worship of Molech make sense in that context? What do we know about the worship of Molech? What is it, what is it, what is it characterized by? Child sacrifice. Exactly right. So could this be a condemnation of modern-day Israel for the sin of abortion? Descended to Sheol. Debased themselves to Sheol. You could also read that. Practice wickedness. Worthy of Sheol. A little speculative, I'll admit. But it, it, doesn't, it doesn't do injustice to the language. Speculative, but I think worth speculating. Verse 10. You're wearied in the length of your way, yet you did not say there's no hope. You found the life of your hand, therefore you were not grieved. And that's not a bad description of Israel today. Proud but tired. On the one hand, Israel's unofficial national motto, never again. But, but the subtext of, of everything that we read and everything that we see and everything that we hear from Israel is how long can we keep going? Never again, but oh, are we tired. Never again, but we're so very alone. Because Israel is at war with her neighbors and, and, and increasingly isolated on the international front. It's strife within, daily protests. But, but they keep going. They keep going. They keep finding resolve. They keep pulling themselves up by their own bootsteps, or bootstraps. They don't, and this is what Isaiah is saying in verse 10, they don't stop and ask, is it possible we have all this wrong? Is it possible we're doing this wrong? Should we maybe give up? <laughs> Should we maybe start over? Do we maybe need to start with a different set of presuppositions, a different set of assumptions? Yeah, you should, says God, verse 11. And of whom have you been afraid or feared that you've lied and not remembered me nor taken it to your heart? Is it not because I've held my peace from of old that you don't fear me? God says, you're not reconsidering your foundational assumptions. You won't. You can't bring yourself to. But you really should. Because you're fearing nations, you're fearing factions, you're fearing economic isolation. You should be fearing me. You should be fearing me. Why aren't you? Let's read the second part of verse 11 again. Is it not because I've held my peace from of old that you do not fear me? 
Israel's making the same mistake that so many people in our lives make. The same mistake that, that all of us at one time or another have probably made. Confusing God's silence with approval. Well, if this was a big deal to the Lord, surely there would have been lightning bolts and earthquakes by now. If, if this was a big deal, God would have, would have shown me. There would have been some dramatic demonstration of his displeasure. Our best selves know better, right? Sometimes when God is silent, it's not his approval. He's giving us time to repent. I'm... I'm, I'm been talking to a pastor in California as of late um, who's, who's being restored to ministry, which is a very good thing. Uh, a man that the Lord has used marvelously for many years. He was out of ministry for a time. And the reason he was out of ministry, he, he like so many, became addicted to painkillers after surgery. And even after he didn't need them for the pain, he got to a point where he felt like he needed them and, and had a prescription painkiller addiction. But he kept telling himself, well, if it was a big deal, people wouldn't be getting saved. It was, if it was a big deal, we wouldn't be planning churches. If it was a big deal, people wouldn't be raising their hands in worship. Until one day, God very dramatically removed his anointing. He said, it was, he said I, I, I would look at the word to teach the word, and it was, I was like I was looking at it with the eyes of an unbeliever. It didn't speak to me the same way. I couldn't teach the same way. I couldn't lead the same way. And he, and he said, and I get really, really mad at the Lord. I get really, really angry. God, why aren't you loving me? You've, you've, you've been loving me, even though I've been popping pills. You've been loving me. And then the Lord spoke to him and said, no, I've, I've been loving the people in spite of you. But, but I'm taking away your gifting, your anointing, because I love you. And I love you too much to let you continue thinking that it's okay. But, but, but that was the mistake that God is speaking of here, to confuse silence with approval. God, you haven't judged me. You haven't I haven't been smitten, smoten, smotten. <laughs> and, and God says, yeah. I, I haven't forgotten you, and I'm not ignoring you. And my silence is about to come to a screeching halt. I will declare your righteousness and your works, for they will not profit you. When he says, I'll declare your righteousness, I'll declare your lack of righteousness. I will, I will show you an honest appraisal of what you think your righteousness is. Spoiler alert, it's a pile of filthy rags. Verse 13, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. You're going to ask me for help, and I'm going to say, what about the gods you've been worshiping? Where are they? The wind will carry them all away. A breath will take them. But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Now something just happened in the middle of that verse. The beginning of the verse, God says, you're going to call upon your, your false gods. You're going, to, you're going to call upon all of the, the idols that you've been depending on. And those are going to be the days where wheat is separated from chaff, and chaff is going to get blown away. Now, up to that point, 
All of this could be referring to Israel and Isaiah's day. Israel after the failed invasion of Assyria, by Assyria in 701, before the successful invasion of the Babylonians in 586. In particular, this could be describing the reign of Manasseh. Flip over to 2 Kings 21, just for fun. Because it's Wednesday night and we like to go wandering. The reign of Manasseh. 2 Kings 21, verse 2. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord has cast out before the children of Israel, including, incidentally, the Ammonites, who worshipped Molech. He rebuilt the high places, which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal and made a wooden image, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I'll put my name. He built altars for all the hosts of heaven, all kinds of false gods, in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his sons pass through the fire, practicing soothsaying, witchcraft, spiritists, mediums. He did much anger in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger, and, and so on. So, so everything we've been reading about in Isaiah 57 could very well describe the leadership of Israel in those days. But look, go back to Isaiah 57, and look where the Holy Spirit landed in verse 13. He who puts his trust in me shall possess the land. Right there, that gets our attention. Because Israel has never fully possessed the land that God promised to Abraham and shall inherit my holy mountain. And we recognize that as clearly millennial, right? From the beginning of our study in Isaiah, way back in Isaiah chapter 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days, and we understand that to mean the end times, times yet future for you and me, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He'll teach us his ways, for we shall walk in his paths. That's millennial. That hasn't happened yet. So I think there was a pivot halfway through verse 13. Up to that point, we could be talking about either... Israel past, or Israel future, or it's me, both. Give, give me a chance to say it's probably both. I'm going to say it's probably both, because I think it's probably both. But, I lost chapter 57, beginning with the second half of 13 and into 14, we're clearly forward-facing, future-facing, Verse 14, one shall say, heap it up, heap it up, prepare the way. Take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. <clears throat> prepare the way. We've seen that before too, haven't we? A highway, a roadway, a literal way for people to return to the land after the millennium. First started reading about that in chapter 11, chapter 19. Isaiah... 35, 
where I don't have a bookmark. But that's okay. Isaiah 35, verse 8. A highway shall be there and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Isaiah 40, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. We haven't gotten there yet, but Isaiah 62, 10. Go through. Go through the gates, prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Take out the stones, lift up a banner for the people. Clearly future-facing. I don't know what people who think that God has done with Israel do with this. I really don't. I don't understand how they, how they don't see it. Verse 15, For thus says the high and lofty one, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, with him who has a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. That's the gospel, right? The holy most high is brought low that we might be lifted up. There's your memory verse for tonight. It's true for us today. The high and holy one was brought low that as we humble ourselves and believe on him, we're lifted up. True for us today, it'll be true for the believing remnant of Israel one day. Verse 16, For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the Spirit would fail before me and the souls which I have made. God is saying, if I turn my wrath loose, if I poured out the justice that people, that humanity deserves, there would be nothing of creation left. But he says in the same verse, but I won't do that. I've promised not to do that. I could, he says. And, 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 if, and if justice were God's only attribute, he would. But verse 17, for the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry, and he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. If justice were God's only attribute, there would be just charred remains. But, verse 18, I've seen his ways, and I will heal him. I'll also lead him and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. And, and there's a double meaning there, right? God has seen our ways, our sin, but he's also seen our repentance. God has seen Israel's ways, Israel's sin, but he will see Israel's repentance. I'll restore comforts to him and to his mourners. Doesn't that remind us of Zechariah 12? We've turned there many times in our study through Isaiah. Zechariah 12, 10, I'll pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they'll look at me whom they pierce. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem. And it goes on to describe the mourning and the land shall mourn and the families will mourn. Every family by itself and their wives by themselves. God will see the repentance. He will hear the confession. He will receive the profession 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he'll respond. He's done that for each of us individually. He will do that for Israel collectively. Verse 19, I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near. To him who is far off, that's us, the Gentiles. To him who is near, the Jew. I bring peace. Peace, peace. Shalom, shalom. Isaiah 26, 3. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah the Lord is everlasting strength. He's reprising that theme. I create the fruit of the lips. I bring peace. I'll allow the one who's, who's close, to, close to me to say peace, peace, to know peace, to know everlasting peace. But what about the one who rejects him? What about the one who denies him? Oh, it got stuck. Nope, it's just going to stay there. <clears throat> Sorry. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it can. <coughs> there it is. <laughs> Excuse me. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Peace, peace, eternal peace. Shalom without end for those who call upon the name of the Lord. No peace. A complete and utter absence of peace, always and forever. To those who cling to their wickedness, choose wisely, the Holy Spirit is saying at the close of the chapter. Verse 15 is interesting for a number of reasons. It's interesting because it's a, it's a wonderful declaration of the gospel. It's interesting because it's one of two places that the word eternity appears in our New King James translation. Some older translations, it's the only place the word eternity appears. Now, don't make more of that than, 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 than there is, because the Hebrew word shows up many other places. It's just one of two places that the English translators chose to bring it over and translate it as eternity. But, but I still think that we can allow the Holy Spirit to, to use that to call our attention to God speaking to us tonight about eternity. We, 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 we sometimes say, we sometimes sing, he's the Lord of time and space. And that's true, as long as we realize that that's not all that's true. He's the Lord way beyond time and space. Time and space are his creation. He's not merely Lord of creation. He's Lord of all. He's Lord outside of creation. He's God before time. And he'll, he'll be God after time. And he's come to live in our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3.11, the other place eternity appears, the word eternity in the New King James translation. Ecclesiastes 3.11, Solomon says he's placed eternity in our hearts. Isn't that interesting? He's placed eternity in our hearts and he's come to live in our hearts. Our sin left a God-shaped hole in our heart and God filled that hole. The God of all eternity entered space and time 
Not just to dwell with us, but to dwell in us. And one day, he's telling us in this chapter, he's going to bring us to dwell with him in eternity. In everlasting peace. Are we mindful of that? The end of chapter 56. The very last couplet. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. The world tells itself, yesterday is today like tomorrow. The only difference will be it'll be better. No, it won't. (laughs) This world is passing. This world is perishing. It's perishing before our eyes. And it begs the question, are we living for today or are we living in eternity? Are we waiting for something? Or are we being revived? Are our hearts being revived? Is God the Holy Spirit free? Are we allowing him to revive us? Are we asking for revival? Verse 10 You're wearied in the length of your way, yet you did not say there's no hope. Are we asking for revival? Are we saying, God, I know there's more than this. You created me for more than this. Are we asking God, will you live your life through me? Israel wouldn't. And today won't. And, and, and will continue not to until God chastens them enough to convince them. And God will do the same for us today. I think we've all experienced that at one time or another. In the story I was just telling about the pastor in California. God allowed him a, 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 a time of, of grace, a time of, of silence. Hey, I'm here. I'm waiting. I'm ready. When you're ready to turn from your sin, I'm ready, to, I'm ready to do that with you. I'm ready to do that for you. I'll be the power that, that, that's necessary. But, but you have to want to. And when, and when that wasn't enough, God said, okay. You know, what's the C.S. Lewis line? When, when a whisper doesn't work, God uses a megaphone. When gentleness doesn't work, God turns to chastening. He does that with us individually. He'll do that with with Israel collectively. We must not lapse into thinking, well, I've got time. I've got time to get serious about the Lord. I've got time to serve the Lord. I've got time to really love the Lord. You know, Jesus is still a long ways off. Oh, we don't know that. We cannot know that. And and if we don't take the advantage of the time that God is giving us to get serious, we might run out of time, or we might run headlong into a season of chastening. And the thing about those seasons of chastening, when we look back, isn't it true? We realize that didn't have to happen. It didn't have to be like that. I had all of the information I needed. God always provides a way of escape. I could have made the choices then that I'm making now. I just didn't want to. Why didn't we want to? 
because we were focused on this world and this life and our experience of this life more than we were focused on eternity. Are we doing things that will matter in eternity? God, God entered time and space to free us from this life. Why do we cling to this life? Jesus laid down his life to free us from this life. What is it about it that's so attractive? Harry Ironsides, pastor of Moody Bible Church for uh, 20 or so years in the first half of the 20th century. Before, he, he, he tells the story, before World War I, there was a Bible scholar in Germany whose name was Schroeder. And, and he was not only a Bible scholar, but particularly a prophecy scholar. And he attracted the attention of Kaiser Wilhelm, who was actually an amateur preacher, in addition to being kind of nuts. But, but Kaiser Wilhelm, Chancellor Emperor of Germany at the time, invites Professor Strohr to the palace to share. What is it that you're going around teaching at universities and seminaries about prophecy? Well, he laid out with charts and pictures and graphs uh, an understanding of the end times. And the Kaiser says, do I understand you right? You're saying that Jesus is going to come back literally. And when he comes back, he's going to destroy the kingdoms of the world and his kingdom will be built on, on their ashes, on their ruins. And Schroeder says, yes, yes, exactly. He was excited that Wilhelm like, grasped what he was saying. Exactly, your majesty. And the Kaiser said, oh, I can't have that. No, that, that will ruin all my plans. We need to let Jesus ruin our plans. We need to let Jesus ruin our plans. We need to stop worshiping creation living for ourselves, kneeling before false gods. We need to be honest. To the extent that we do those things, we're not finding peace there. So we need to stop looking. Jesus, ruin my plans and, and keep ruining my plans and replace them with your plans. Replace them with eternal plans. Pastor friend of mine, was talking to me this weekend about, about uh, a message that he'd heard from Damien Kyle. Damien Kyle, pastor of Calvary Modesto. And I'll close with this. Damien offered up to the group that he was teaching. I can't remember if it was his congregation or if it was at a pastor's conference, but, but, he, but he asked this question. Are you okay with the way that Jesus is living your life? Are you okay with the way that Jesus is living your life? Pondering that, really embracing that question. And I've been doing it for like a week now. <laughs> yeah. That'll bring you that'll bring you face to face with 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 are we living for today? Or are we letting Jesus ready us? For eternity, Are we living in this creation or are we already 
being citizens of heaven? Lord, such an important question, and you've given us the answer. You've given us everything we need, all things pertaining to life and godliness. You've given us your word. You've given us your spirit that allows us to, to walk out your word, to embrace your word and embody your word. Oh, Lord, would you pursue us? Would you persevere? And we ask, would you break the silence? Lord, if you're giving us time, if you're giving us space, if you're giving us grace to repent, and we're not seeing that, if we're confusing silence with approval, Lord, we humbly ask you to repeat yourself. Convict us. If we've grown dull to conviction, if our conscience has been seared, Lord, would you speak once more to our heart and would you point us to eternity? We ask in your gracious and merciful name.